and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. As always, thank you very much for listening. A quick note of housekeeping before we begin the show today. The podcast will be going on hiatus at the end of the series, but worry not, as we will be returning in September with the premiere of Season 2 of the Historia Dramatica podcast. In the meantime, keep an eye on my Twitter for upcoming announcements regarding the podcast and my plans going forward, including my plans to start a YouTube channel and a Patreon. Anyway, on with the show. In the last episode of this series on the life and death of Japanese author Yukio Mishima, we discussed the middle part of Mishima's career. Although his autobiographical novel, Confessions of a Mask, catapulted Mishima to national fame, Mishima still felt a certain sickness of the soul. He gained a prognosis during a trip to Greece, that he could achieve a virtuous life by maintaining his external beauty. He took up weightlifting and bodybuilding, and he quickly shed his pale, anemic appearance. Mishima focused almost entirely on his upper body while neglecting his legs, thus creating the impression that his skinny matchstick legs were insufficient to hold up his massive upper body. In 1958, believing that his beloved mother Shizue would soon be dead of cancer, Mishima resolved to get married. After some searching, he settled on a woman named Yoko Sugiyama. It is difficult to speak to the exact nature of their relationship, although Mishima must have felt, at the very least, that in Yoko, he had someone who could reliably at least play the part of his wife in public, to keep up appearances and all. Mishima reached the peak of his success around the Mishima reached the peak of his success with the publication of The Temple of the Golden Pavilion in 1956, only to come crashing down with the publication of Kyoko's House in 1959. Mishima's, real f- Mishima's first real taste of failure sent him reeling. He began to doubt his own work. In a state of uncertainty, Mishima began to regress into the blood-soaked romanticism that characterized his earlier works, and that he had been working so hard to exercise with Confessions of a Mask. The first indicator of this romantic turn would be his short story Patriotism, which detailed, rather graphically, the ritual suicide of a young army officer involved in the attempted 1936 Japanese coup d'etat. So significant was Mishima's attachment to this story that, in 1965, he made the decision to produce and star in a film adaptation of Patriotism. The production process took place in secrecy, and the shooting itself was completed in just two days. Mishima debuted Patriotism, or as he called it in, or, as he called it in English, The Right of Love and Death, at the 1966 Tour Film Festival in France. There it caused quite a stir, as several audience members fainted during the climactic scene in which the protagonist commits seppuku. The same thing occurred when the film premiered in Japan as well. With Patriotism, Mishima once again had come to view death as, how he put it in his own words, quote, the only enticing, truly vivid, and truly erotic concept." End quote. Mishima's thoughts were preoccupied with suicide, although he was not necessarily at the point where he began to actively plan his own death. In an interview he gave for a magazine in 1962, Mishima said, quote, "...within two or three years I shall be 55 years old. I will then have to make a plan for the rest of my life. I'll feel better knowing that I lived longer than Ryunosuke Atugawa." than Ryunosuke Akutagawa. But then, I'll... But then, I'll have to make an effort to live as long as possible. The average lifespan for a man in the Bronze Age was 18. In the Roman era, 22. Heaven must have been filled with beautiful youths. Recently, it must look dreadful. When a man reaches the age of 40, he has no chance to die beautifully. No matter how hard he tries, he will die in an ugly way. He has to force himself to live. End quote. Mishima's next major novel since Kyoko's House was The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, written in 1963. It was, as Mishima biographer John Nathan called it, a quote, quintessentially romantic novel in the Mishima sense. End quote. Despite the big expectations Mishima had placed on it, The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea too failed. In the early 1960s, Mishima struggled to get a book to sell even a tenth of what his novels had sold in the previous decade. On at least one occasion, Mishima visited his publisher to personally apologize for failing to write a bestseller. 
Despite his fading fame in Japan, Mishima felt that he was finally beginning to receive critical recognition from the international community. In 1965, Mishima heard a rumor that he was being seriously considered for the Nobel Prize in Literature. This would have been the first time the prize would have been awarded to a Japanese citizen. He staked the hopes of his literary career on winning the prize. He would finally earn the international recognition that he felt he had deserved for his past two novels, and perhaps he would once again reach the heights of success that he once knew in 1956. He was disappointed when the Nobel Prize for that year instead went to Soviet author Mikhail Shokolov. Mishima was once again seriously considered for the prize three years later. Apparently, the committee was all set to give the award to Mishima, but at the last minute they opted for an older author, Mishima's old mentor Yasunari Kawabata. Mishima was crestfallen. According to a friend, he had never seen Mishima as depressed as the night of the announcement. Although outwardly, Mishima remained unchanged as the premier author of his generation, he had long felt that his career was on the decline, and his failure to win the Nobel Prize in 1968 more or less proved this to him. With his career appearing to be in such dire straits, is it any wonder that in the 1960s, Mishima took increasingly towards politics? Is it any wonder that in the 1960s, Mishima turned increasingly towards politics? In 1960, when student protests broke out in Tokyo over the re-signing of the U.S.-Japan Defense Treaty, Mishima covered them intently. That year, he also released After the Banquet, a novel which was so acute a, criti- which was so acute a criticism of modern Japanese politics that the subject of the novel sued Mishima for invasion of privacy. And yet, despite his slow shift towards the ultra- ultra-nationalist right, in 1961, he was the recipient of many violent threats from right-wing extremists. These threats were issued because Mishima had voiced his support for author Sichiro Fukuzawa, an author who, had mo- who authored a short story in which the crown prince and princess of Japan were attacked by a socialist mob. The story caused an uproar amongst the far right in Japan. They, reman- they demanded that Fukuzawa be expelled from the country. The more extreme among them called for his arrest and execution. On February 1st, 1961, one young fascist took matters into his own hands. He broke into the house of Shimanaka Hoji, the man who had published the offending story. Armed with a katana, he was successful in he was unsuccessful in attacking Shimanaka. He was out at the time, but he attacked and killed a maid during the break-in. Mishima had been out of the country since last November. He had finally taken his wife on the honeymoon he had been unable to take her on immediately following their marriage, on account, of his, on account of his being preoccupied with finishing Kyoko's house. Mishima and Yoko returned to Japan in February, where, he, where they found, to their shock, that some of Mishima's, most, that Mishima's vocal support of Fukuzawa had made him the target of ultra-nationalist scorn. Some had even speculated that he had been the true author of the offending story. The Shimanaka incident shook Mishima to the point where he hired a bodyguard, and he himself would patrol the perimeter of his house, sword in hand, waiting to encounter some ultra-nationalist assassin. Such threats, however, did not stop Mishima's turn towards the ultra-nationalist right. In fact, they may well have hastened it. The publication and subsequent film adaptation of Patriotism proved this. Mishima's tr- first truly political work was released in 1966, a short story entitled Voice of the Hero Spirits. The story is written from the perspective of the souls of the young officers of the 1936 coup and the kamikaze pilots of the Second World War. These hero spirits castigate the emperor for renouncing his divinity at the end of the war. The spirits in the story not only felt as though the emperor's renunciation of his divinity meant that their sacrifices were in vain, but they also blamed this this decision for what Mishima called the spiritual hollowness of post-war Japan. Mishima had come to view the emperor, or rather the abstract ideal of the emperor, as the very essence of Japanese-ness, and to martyr oneself in defense of the emperor was the ultimate spiritual action. Mishima's political and spiritual philosophy is admittedly a lot more complicated than what I've just laid out for you here. His biographer, John Nathan, does a much better job of explaining the nuances of Mishima's philosophy. Alternatively, you can read Mishima's essay, The Defense of Culture, published in July 1968, 
to get a real sense of what the man believed. With his desire to die merged with his reverence of the emperor, Mishima was now honing in on that plan for life he mentioned in that magazine interview I read from earlier. Drawing from feudal Japanese tradition, Mishima's life plan, his ethos for the last four years of his life, was to be something called Bonburyado, or the dual way of the pen and the sword. Writing was no longer enough for Mishima, nor was mere bodybuilding. He had to put his political ideals into action, while still keeping up with his writing. In practice, what this meant was that for every milestone reached in his literary career, he must take one step closer towards political action. For the first year of his plan, 1966, his literary action was the publishing of his first installment of his Sea of Fertility Tetralogy. Was the publishing of the first installment of his Sea of Fertility Tetralogy. Sea of Fertility was meant to be Mishima's grand statement, a complete encapsulation of the author's deepest held beliefs. Mishima had originally estimated that it would take him six years to write, and that it would total 3,000 pages. He was a bit off in this calculation. Instead, it took him four years to write, and, in total, all four volumes consisted of 28,000 pages. The first installment in the Tetralogy, Spring Snow, was received lukewarmly by critics, but, at this point, Mishima did not care for what they had to say. He immediately got to work on the next installment, Runaway Horses. His equivalent political action was to enlist in the Japanese self-defense forces and undergo basic training. To avoid any unnecessary complications, he enlisted under his birth name, Kimitake Hirooka, and without any rank. He was surely a ridiculous sight, a man in his mid-forties performing military exercises along 18 and 19-year-olds. The training was grueling, Mishima often struggled to keep up, but he persisted. With his physical training complete, Mishima now set out to recruit members for the militia he planned to form. He reached out to the student working group of the right-wing newspaper, The Controversy Journal. In a series of meetings with these college students, Mishima informed them that he was forming a civilian army to combat leftist agitation. The stated purpose of this army was to support the Japanese self-defense forces, and it would theoretically exist as a branch of it. Mishima was able to recruit about a dozen students for his militia. In February of 1968, he made these recruits, he and these recruits made a blood oath to, quote, rise up with sword in hand against any threat to the culture and the historical continuity of the fatherland, end quote. That summer, Mishima had these recruits of his enlist in the JSDF and undergo the same basic training that he did. Mishima also made sure that these recruits, who would form the basis of the organization's officer corps, received classes in tactics and strategy as well. Although they drilled alongside the JSDF soldiers and used their facilities, negotiations with the JSDF to make Mishima's fledgling militia and a branch of the organization ultimately failed. The JSDF High Command claimed that they lacked the resources, but moreover, it just seems that they failed to take Mishima and his little army seriously. On November 4, 1968, Mishima called for a press conference. He and a few of his officers appeared before the public for the first time in their sharp new uniforms. These were modeled after the uniforms of the officers involved in the February 26th incident, and were designed by Mishima himself, with some help of Charles de Gaulle's personal tailor. Mishima announced the founding of a completely separate group from the self-defense forces. His militia was henceforth to be known as the Tatenokai, the Shield Society. The core tenets of the Tatenokai were as follows. 1. Communism is incompatible with Japanese tradition, culture, history, and runs counter the, to the imperial system. 2. The emperor is the sole symbol of our historical and cultural community and of our racial identity. 3. The use of violence is justifiable in view of the threat posed by communism. The Japanese press did not take them very seriously either. The Tatenokai was dubbed Captain Mishima's toy army. In spite of the fact that the Tatenokai did not officially confederate with the JSDF, and although the JSDF did not take them very seriously, the self-defense forces continued to allow the Tatenokai's recruits to train using their facilities. In March and July, in March and July of 1963. 
In March and July of 1969, Mishima led successive groups of recruits in training at the JSDF camp at the base of Mount Fuji. The Shield Society received about 50 applicants a year, nearly all of whom were students from universities in Tokyo. Mishima took it upon himself to interview each applicant personally, to weed out those he felt had insufficient spirit for the work that had to be done. Although Mishima originally envisioned that Tatenokai of being a force of about equal to the JSDF, which at the time had about 150,000 active personnel, Mishima tampered his ambitions by quite a bit and lowered this number to a much more attainable goal of 100 men. He was able to reach this goal by March of 1970. The Shield Society was founded with the intent to shield the Emperor, or rather the abstract ideal of the Emperor, from leftist threats. But really, one might ask, what did Mishima actually plan to do with his militia of college students? Mishima's overactive mind conjured up all sorts of fantastical scenarios in which the Tatenokai would be put to use. These scenarios almost always involved some sort of leftist insurrection that would be too powerful for the police to contain by themselves. Mishima fantasized about doing battle with the left in the streets, fighting them to protect the emperor until the mob's overwhelming numbers defeated him and his men. Another scenario, closer to the one that ultimately played out, involved the involved the Tenokai spearheading an attack on the National Diet. Mishima hoped that they would be joined by the soldiers of the self-defense forces. Once they had managed to occupy the Diet, the victors would demand the revision of the Japanese constitution to once again allow Japan to have an official standing army, to restore command of this army to the emperor, and to restore the emperor's divinity. In every scenario, it was very important to Mishima that he die with a sword in his hand. Quote, the Shield Society is a standby army. There is no way of... Mishima was quoted in saying... Mishima was quoted as saying in a 1970 interview, quote, The Shield Society is a standby army. There is no way of knowing when our day will come. Perhaps it will never come. Perhaps it will come tomorrow. Until then, the Shield Society will remain calmly and at the ready. End quote. Mishima anticipated their day would come in 1970. That year, the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty would once again be up for renewal, and many anticipated that workers and students would once again take to the streets to protest it, just as they had, just as they had done a decade prior. However, the Tatenokai's appointed day came sooner than anticipated. In 1968, much of the world was rocked by mass protests. The reason for these protests were manifold, but specifically to Japan, the three to 5,000 demonstrators who took to the streets on October 21, 1968, were to protest the American military presence in the country on account of the ongoing Vietnam War. Hundreds were wounded and nearly a thousand were arrested, the largest mass arrest in post-war Japanese history. But Mishima was not yet ready to die. His life plan, the Bunburyado, would not allow him to die for at least another two years, until he could finish the Sea of Fertility Tetralogy. Rather, Mishima opted to observe. He was appointed a special correspondent by a local newspaper, and he wrote detailed notes on the riots from a distance. He observed clashes between students and riot police from the roof of a parking garage for three hours that morning. When the action moved closer to downtown, he rushed over to the headquarters of the foreign office, where his younger brother, Chiyuki, worked. Officially, Mishima's purpose that day was to gather intelligence on the less weaponry and tactics, so they could utilize this information in the final showdown. But, Chiyuki described his brother as being that day, quote, boyishly excited at the action going on below, as though he were a child with a new toy, end quote. Another acquaintance who encountered Mishima that day said, quote, it was as though he had come to enjoy a fireworks festival. He watched with a smile on his face as the demonstrators clashed with the police, and when the stone throwing got fierce and the police broke ranks, he looked about ready to jump up and clap his hands. End quote. Although things eventually calmed down elsewhere in the city, Tokyo University remained a hotbed of student radicalism. Some 400 or so students barricaded themselves inside Yasuda Hall and took hostages. The police besieged them for weeks on end until, on January 19, 1969, the police, the police unleashed a maelstrom of tear gas. The police unleashed a maelstrom of tear gas, charged the hall, and drove the students out, arresting many of them in the process. Some were injured, 
some seriously, but nobody was killed. Mishima was very disappointed in this development. He sought to make an example of them to the Tatenokai. Quote, Observe and remember that when the final moment came, there was not one of them who believed in what he stood for sufficiently enough to hurl himself from a window or fall upon a sword. End quote. In May of that year, Mishima was challenged by one of these radical student organizations to debate them on campus. Mishima was offered effect. Mishima was offered protection by both the police and by the Tenokai, but he declined them both. Mishima admitted to feeling a pang of fear that the students might seize and kill him, but he kept his wits about him throughout the debate. In fact, the debate itself was a bit of an anticlimax. While some students hurled abuses at Mishima throughout the two-and-a-half-hour debate, the majority of them succumbed to Mishima's charisma and seemed to respect him in spite of themselves. Mishima attempted to win the students over to his political cause. He claimed that the emperor, or at least his abstract conception of the emperor, was the true source of the revolutionary energy the students sought to harness. He told them, quote, If you would only merely speak the emperor's name, I would gladly join hands with you. But, because you refuse to do that, I must kill you. It is that simple. End quote. Both, sides left the Both sides left the debate unconvinced by the other's rhetoric, tacitly agreeing to forever become ideological enemies. When the transcript of the debate was published, the proceeds from the sales went both to Mishima and to the students. Of this, Mishima said, quote, They probably used their money to buy helmets and Molotov cocktails. I used the money to buy summer uniforms for the Tatenokai. All parties involved are satisfied. End quote. On November 3rd, Mishima invited some foreign correspondents to watch the Tatenokai parade in honor of the one-year anniversary of the society's founding. The parade took place on the roof of the Japanese National Theater. Below, on the stage, Mishima was directing a dress rehearsal of a new kabuki play he had written. It is worth remembering that all during this time, Mishima was still busy as ever, writing plays, short stories, and most importantly, the last two novels in his Sea of Fertility tetralogy. In fact, he had written this particular play, The Moon, Draw the Moon Like a Drawn Bow, in only three months. During this time, Mishima was living a double life of sorts, and the two lives clashed with each other here. Mishima ran frantically between the rooftop to direct the parade and the stage to direct his play. Following the parade, Mishima invited his guests to a reception where he gave two speeches, one in Japanese and an identical one in English. In this speech, he explained his reasoning for creating the Tatenokai, in hopes that his audience would be sympathetic with his aims. In spite of their impressive display in November, dressed in their sharp military uniforms and performing drills with military precision, not all was well within the ranks of the Tatenokai. Months earlier, a sizable faction had left the group en masse. The precipitating, the precipitating incident is a bit too convoluted to get into here, but the upshot of it is, is that it resulted in Mishima's right-hand man, Hiroshi Mochimaru, leaving the Tatenokai. Mochimaru had recently been married, and he decided that he was simply no longer had and he decided that he simply no longer had the stomach to fight and potentially die by Mishima's side. Mishima did all he could to entice Mochimaru to stay, but he would not hear any of it. Apparently, Mishima was inconsolable following his departure. He spoke openly about suspending operations or even disbanding the Tatenokai entirely, but a new student leader rose to take Mochimaru's place by Mishima's side. His name was Masakatsu Morita. He was a 25-year-old student at Waseda University in Tokyo, and a personal acquaintance of Mochimaru. Morita was a latecomer to the group, joining in March, joining in March 1968. But he and Mishima took a liking to each other almost immediately. Unlike some other members of the society, Morita's views aligned almost perfectly with Mishima's, and he was one of the few members who could match Mishima's zeal. At some point in early 1970, Yukio Mishima had resolved himself to die. Not only to die, but to commit seppuku. Perhaps he realized that his moment to go down fighting in the streets would never occur, but he was determined to get his warrior's death one way or another. Morita, ever loyal to Mishima, resolved to die alongside him. In March of that year, Mishima formed a working group within the Tatenokai 
to help him carry out the coup d'etat that would lead to his death. Obviously, Morita would be right by his side to the last. The first the first person the two chose to join them was a, 24, was a 21-year-old from Tokyo University, named Masayoshi Koga. To distinguish himself from a fellow comrade also named Koga, Koga went by Chibi, or Little Koga. Chibi Koga was small in stature but energetic, and, more importantly, he was utterly loyal to the Tatenokai, and trusted completely by both Morita and Mishima. One night, Mishima met Chibi Koga, on one-on-one -on -one in a cafe and asked him if he was prepared to do in his words and asked him if he was prepared to follow him to the very end chibikoga agreed the other member of this working group masahiro ogawa needed more convincing tall and pale ogawa was the standard bearer of the tetenokai and he looked up to morita like a uh, like an older brother it took two personal meetings with Mishima for Ogawa to agree to be party to whatever it was they were planning. A last-minute addition to the team was Hiromasa Koga, or Furu Koga. After a few weeks, the plan began to take form, and the Mishima and Mishima and the Tetenokai. After a few weeks, the plan began to take form. Mishima and the Tetenokai would infiltrate a military base under some pretext or other, and using only swords or daggers, they would take a high-ranking general hostage. He would then make this general assemble the troops so that Mishima could deliver a prepared speech that he hoped would inspire the soldiers to rebel against the government, march to the national diet, and demand a revision of the constitution. Quietly, Mishima began to put his affairs in order. He had his lawyer transfer over the rights for his novels Confessions of a Mask and, for, and Thirst for Love to his own mother. He began to say goodbye to his unwitting friends. To some, he dropped subtle hints of what he had planned. While at a dinner with his friend, television producer Date Munikatsu, he asked him if it would be a big news story if he were to die. Date replied that it would be. Mishima then asked Date if he committed seppuku, would he, would he televise it live? An awkward silence ensued before Mishima suddenly burst out laughing, as did Date. During this time, Mishima sat down to finish whatever works he was already in the process of writing at this time. He worked himself ragged, trying to finish The Decay of the Angel, the final book in the Sea of Fertility tetralogy, and he managed to finish it in August of that year, much ahead of the schedule he had given his publisher. In mid-September, Mishima posed for a series of photographs, intended to make up an album entitled Death of a Man. These photographs depicted various depicted various visions of Mishima's death. They depicted him crushed beneath the wheels of a cement truck, him with a hatchet sticking out of his head, him drowning in mud, and, most infamously, a depiction of himself as Saint Sebastian, reenacting the Remy painting that had awakened something in him as a child. Most poignantly, the final photograph in the series was one of Mishima, sitting half-nude on the floor, with a sword buried in his abdomen, and a second sword, wielded by a man out of frame, holding it over his neck, waiting for the signal to give the final coup de grace. Given the nature of Mishima's actual death, the photographer, a young man named Kishin Shinoyama, could not bring himself to publish these photographs. In early November, Mishima designed and proudly displayed an exhibitory Mishima designed and proudly displayed an exhibitory retrospective of his life, entitled An Exhibit of Yukio Mishima. It consisted of photographs of Mishima from his childhood, right up to the present day, and it ominously ended with a series of photographs from with it ominously ended with a series of photographs from his yet unpublished Death of a Man series. Mishima grouped these photographs together in four sections that he termed rivers. The first was the river of books, which flowed into the river of theater, which in turn flowed into the river of the body, which then in turn flowed into the river of action. The four rivers, which were intended to symbolize the whole of Mishima's life trajectory, flowed into the Sea of Fertility, representing the tetralogy that Mishima considered his magnum opus. Clearly, these actions, posing for photographs depicting his demise and the curation of a gallery intended to represent the whole breadth of his life, were reflective of a man deep in thought, contemplating the whole course of his life as he prepared for his death. 
On November 14th, Mishima met with the action group to draft their manifesto and to nail down the final details of the plan. The manifesto proclaimed the Tetenokai's intention to revive the samurai spirit of Japan by inducing the self-defense forces to throw off the shackles of liberal democracy. It appealed to the soldiers' sense of national pride, quote, Are none of you willing to die by hurling yourselves against the Constitution, which has torn the bones and heart from the nation we love? We know your souls are pure. If you are there, let us stand and die together. It is our fierce desire that you revive as true samurai that has driven us to take this action. End quote. The manifesto, which was drafted by Mishima ahead of time, was approved by all present, unamended. They then sat down to determine a time frame for the coup d'etat. The plan was laid out thusly. On November 25th, the four of them would travel to the Ichigaya headquarters of the Japanese self-defense forces. They would then be allowed in on the premise that they had a meeting with one Commandant Masuda. While Mishima conversed with him, he would give a signal, and the others would subdue the commandant and tie him to a chair. He would then be made to issue an order that the entire garrison assemble on the parade grounds. Once this has been accomplished, Mishima planned to give his speech, which he anticipated would take about 30 minutes. After this, each member of the Tetenokai would be allotted five minutes to give speeches of their own. Then, a pronouncement would be made, officially disbanding the Tetenokai. Mishima also made sure that time be set aside for the group to offer three cheers to the emperor. Then, Mishima would commit seppuku. Morita was assigned, Kai- assigned Kaishakunin duty, meaning that he was to decapitate Mishima after he had plunged the sword into his stomach. His instructions to Morita were to not let him suffer for too long. Morita would then commit seppuku himself. Mishima spent the night of the 24th putting his final affairs in order. That day, he rehearsed his plan with the other Tetenokai members. Afterwards, in the tradition of the samurai, Mishima sat down to write his death poem, quote, A small night storm blows, saying, Falling is the essence of a flower, preceding those who, hes- preceding those who hesitate, end quote. Even though the plan only called for Mishima and Morita to die, Mishima encouraged the others to compose their own poems, just in case. Later that night, Mishima gave Date and his other friends in the media a call, informing them that something big was to happen tomorrow, but he did not give any further details. He wrote a series of letters to the important people in his life, his wife, his parents, and others, explaining his decision and instructing them on how he wanted to be remembered first and foremost as a warrior, not as a writer. He then walked over to his parents' wing of the house and bade them both good night. Shizue later recalled being able to sense the tension inside Mishima, but she opted then to say nothing. On the morning of November 25, 1970, Yukio Mishima arose early. His wife had already taken the children to school. He shaved carefully, making sure that his death face had no blemishes on it whatsoever. He donned his Tetenokai uniform and secured his sword's sheath to its belt. He placed a fat envelope on a table near the entrance of the house. This contained the manuscript for The Decay of the Angel, the final installment of the Sea of Fertility tetralogy. His publisher would send someone to collect it later. At 10 a.m., a car pulled up, containing the four students. Chibikoga came out of the car to greet him. He handed Chibikoga three envelopes addressed to himself, Furukoga, and Ogawa. He instructed them to read them immediately as he went back inside to collect a briefcase containing his daggers. Getting in the car, Mishima asked if they had opened the envelopes. Each contained explicit orders from Mishima that they were not to take their own lives, a disclaimer written by Mishima claiming full responsibility for everything, and $300 to cover each of the students' legal fees. Ogawa and the two Kogas objected, saying that they too wished to die alongside their master, but Mishima would hear none of it. Quote, to continue living is harder than death. I have tasked you with the most difficult task of all. End quote. The st- three students quieted down and swore to obey Mishima's order. They, then they set out. En route, Mishima jested that at this point in a gangster film, music would be playing. Then he and the four other students struck up a patriotic hymn. The car arrived at Ichigawa headquarters of the JSDF slightly before 11 o'clock. They were then promptly let in and shown up to General Masuda's office on the second floor. 
After briefly exchanging pleasantries with the general, Mishima introduced each member of the Tetanokai to them, singing all of their praises. They then sat down to discuss the exercises that Mishima was allegedly planning to hold at the headquarters that day. The general, at some point, inquired as to Mishima's sword, asking him if it was authentic. Mishima replied that it indeed was, and he unsheathed it. Pretending to notice that it was dirty somehow, Mishima asked Chibikoga for a handkerchief. This was the signal. Chibikoga came up from behind the general and gagged him. Ogawa and Furukoga bound his limbs to the chair. Meanwhile, Morita immediately began to barricade the doors. Noticing the commotion, aides from next door attempted to enter the room. One group managed to push away the defenses and force their way into the room. Mishima ordered them out, or else he would kill the general. When they did not immediately vacate, Mishima unsheathed his sword and slashed at them, entering two of them. They promptly fled to the other side of the barricade. Mishima then issued his demands, that the garrison be assembled beneath the building to hear a speech. If he were hindered in this in any way, he would kill the general. Still, they tried to force their way into the room. Standing back to back with their swords, Mishima and Morita fought them off, wounding at least seven men. After ten minutes of fighting, the second-in-command of the garrison ordered his men to stand down, and he summoned the garrison. Mishima donned a hachimaki, a headband, bearing the slogan, Serve the nation for seven lives. He then smoked a cigarette, and paced nervously around the office as he waited for the soldiers to assemble. Finally, at twelve o'clock exactly, Mishima stepped out onto the balcony, and began to give his speech. Author Henry Scott Stokes provides a full transcript of the speech in his biography of Mishima. Quote, It is a wretched affair, Mishima began, to have to speak to the members of the self-defense force under circumstances like this. The helicopters were making a great noise. Many in the crowd could not hear Mishima's words. I thought, Mishima continued, that the self-defense forces were the last hope of Japan, the last stronghold of the Japanese soul. His words were blotted out by the helicopters. But Japanese people today think nothing of money, only money. Where's our national spirit today? The politicians care nothing for Japan. They are greedy for power. The self-defense forces, Mishima continued, must be the soldiers of Japan. Must be the soul of Japan, the soldiers, the army. There were shouts from the crowd. Cut it out now. Bakayoro, an untranslatable swear word. Asshole. Mishima grew excited. Listen, listen, just hear me out, listen to me, he resumed. We thought the self-defense forces were the soul of national honor, there were shouts. Come down from there, we don't agree with you, Mishima went on. The nation has no spiritual foundation, that is why you don't agree with me. You don't understand Japan. The self-defense forces must make things right. There was violent hooting. Listen, Mishima shouted. Be quiet, you, listen, Bakayoro. Be quiet, will you? Listen. Bakayuro. Mishima tried to go on. Kiss your ass, shouted a soldier from below. Don't you hear? Mishima shouted back. I ask you to be quiet and listen to me. Just hear me out. Stop playing the hero, another heckler shouted. Just listen to me, Mishima hurled back. What happened last year, on October 21st? There was an anti-war demonstration, on October 21st, in Shinjuku, and the police put it down. The police. After that there was, and there will be, no chance to amend the Constitution. So what? So, the Liberal Democratic Party, the politicians decided they can't ju- they can just use the police. The police would deal with the demonstrations. Don't you see? Won't someone call the police? Mishima fought on. Look, the government did not use the self-defense forces. They stayed in their barracks. The Constitution is fixed forever, don't you understand? No, absolutely not. We don't follow you. All right, Mishima said. Listen. Since last October, since then, the self-defense forces have defended the Constitution. There will be no chance to amend it, not for another 20 years. The self-defense forces waited for that chance with tears in their eyes. Too late. Japan is at peace. Mishima looked down at his watch. He had been speaking for only less than five minutes. Why don't you understand? Since October, I've been waiting for the self-defense forces to act. When would it come to its senses? I have waited. There will be no further chance to revise the Constitution. The self-defense forces will never be a proper army. The self-defense forces must rise. Why? 
Come down from there. Come down. To protect, to, to protect Japan, you must protect Japan. To protect Japan, our history, our tradition, our culture, the emperor. His audience, explode, his audience exploded with shouts and jeers. Listen, listen, listen. A man appeals to you. A man. I am staking my life on this. Don't you hear me? If you do not rise with me, the constitution will never be amended. You will just be American mercenaries. Bakayoro, stop talking. Come down from there. Mishima could scarcely made himself heard amidst the din. I have waited for four years, yes, four years, for the self-defense forces to rise up, and now I have come to the last thirty minutes. These words were lost in the noise of helicopter engines. Are you warriors? Are you men? Are you soldiers? Why do you defend the Constitution? You back that which denies your very existence. There were mock cries of alarm from the crowd. You have no future, roared Mishima. You will never be saved. It is the end. The Constitution shall remain forever, and you are finished. He hammered home the point. You are unconstitutional. You are unconstitutional. The self-defense force is unconstitutional. All of you are unconstitutional. There was no reaction from the crowd. Don't you understand? Don't you see what's happening here? Why do you not understand? Why don't you wake up? There, there you are in your tiny world. You will do nothing for Japan. Is that why you injured our men? They put up a resistance. Don't be stupid. Once more, Mishima appealed to the men. Will any of you rise with me? Bakayoro, who would rise with you? Madman. No one? Are you a man? You say that, but you have studied the warrior's ethic. Do you understand the way of the sword? What does the sword mean to the Japanese? I ask you, are you not men? Are you not warriors? Mishima's voice grew calmer. I see that you are not. I see that you will not rise. You will do nothing. I have lost my dream of the self-defense forces. Come down. Someone drag him from there. Why does nobody stop him? Most of the crowd watched on in silence as the sporadic heckling continued. I salute the emperor, cried Mishima. Tenohaika Banzai. Long live the emperor. End quote. With that, Mishima stopped talking. He crawled back through the window into the commandant's office. His only words were, I don't think they heard me very well. He promptly sat down, unbuttoned his jacket, and, after shouting one last cheer to the Emperor, he plunged his sword into his stomach and slowly drew the blade across his abdomen. Morita, at the ready, struck his neck with the sword. This failed to decapitate Mishima as planned, so he struck again, failing. Furukoga stepped forward, took the sword from Morita, and cut off Mishima's head with one clean stroke. Morita then kneeled down and began to copy Mishima. As he attempted to do this, he called out to Koga, who beheaded him as well. The three remaining members of the Tatenokai bowed before their recently deceased comrades and began to weep. The general, still bound but no longer gagged, urged them to cry it out. The boys then released the general and followed him into the hallway, holding their arms in front of them, ready to be handcuffed. Mashima's body was surrendered to his family following a brief autopsy. The ever-benticulous Mishima had left behind detailed instructions for his funeral. His body was to be dressed in his Tetenokai uniform, and in his coffin were to be placed his sword, some writing paper, and his fountain pen. Mishima stipulated that he wished to have a Shinto funeral, although he allowed his family to hold a Buddhist ceremony. When given a posthumous name in accordance with Buddhist tradition, Mishima had stipulated that the character for writing, Bun, not be included in his name. Instead, they were used... Instead, they were to use the character meaning Marshall, or Boo. His parents insisted on using both, so Mishima's posthumous name would be rep better representative of his life. His posthumous name was Shobu in Bunkan Koikoji, which translated means Marshall Illuminator and Luminary and Literary Mere Layman Kimitake. Mishima's memorial service was held on January 24th, 1971 at a Buddhist temple near Tokyo. Some 280 guests, of whom 100 were relatives, attended the main ceremonies. Although some, although some 8,200 people would arrive later to offer their prayers, Mishima's longtime mentor, Yasunari Kawabata, officiated the ceremony. Summarizing the uncertainty that surrounded the events of the past year, Kawabata provided a quote from Confucius, quote, I have yet to know what life is. How can I know what death is? End quote.
When Mishima's mother Shizue saw a guest bringing a bouquet of white flowers, she is said to have told them, quote, You should have brought some red roses for a celebration. This is the first time in his life Kimitake has done something that he always wanted to do. Please be happy for him. End quote. Mishima's remaining accomplices were brought to trial that March. They were all that remained of the t they were all that remained of the Tateno Kai, as the group's other members had unanimously voted to follow Mishima's wishes and disband the organization following his death. The three boys, Masayoshi Koga, Masahiro Ogawa, and Hiroyasu Koga, were brought up on the following charges. Confinement leading to injury, or injuries, or violence. Confinement leading to injury, injuries, or violence. Compelling, pro compelling performance of public duty. Obstruction of justice by violence or threat. And murder by agreement. The prosecution asked for five years imprisonment. The final sentence, passed down exactly one year later, was only four years imprisonment. Plus, the year that they had served in... The final sentence, passed down exactly one year later, was four years imprisonment, plus the year that they had spent in confinement during and while awaiting the trial. The judge ruled that the court had no right to determine whether the accused possessed right or wrong views, but he also ruled that the defendants should have made an effort to stop Mishima from committing suicide, as, in doing so, they, quote, drove a man of great talent to his death, end quote. The judge was quite impressed by the defendant's by the defendant's conduct, praising their gentlemanly manners and willingness to accept any verdict passed down by the court. The three men were released in the fall of 1974, after, after having served two and a half years of their four-year sentence. Upon release, the three men did not return to political activism, instead going back to private life. I have only managed to find details on the post-incarceration life of Hiroyasu Koga, the beheader of both Mishima and Morita. It has been speculated that Koga went on to become a Shinto priest, and to this day resides on the island of Shikoku. On March 3rd, 1977, four armed men, including two former members of the Teteno Kai, barged into the headquarters of the Japanese Business Federation and took 12 hostages. An 11-hour standoff ensued with the police, during which time Mishima's widow, Yoko, having learned that the hostage-takers were admirers of her late husband, participated in negotiations and helped to persuade them to release the hostages and turn themselves in. No one was harmed. To say that Yukio Mishima's legacy is a complicated one is a grave understatement. At the time of his death, Mishima was considered one of the most one of the most prolific authors in the Japanese language. Overall, he had written 34 novels, about 50 plays, 25 books of short stories, at least 35 books of essays, one libretto, and one film. Given that he was relatively young at the time he decided to end his own life, one can only speculate as to the additional contributions Mishima could have made to the field of literature had he lived longer. Despite wishing to be remembered as a man of action, Mishima today is primarily remembered for his writings. Mishima's works have been translated into dozens of different languages, and are enjoyed by readers around the world to this very day. Speaking for myself, I remember hearing of Mishima's story before ever having read one of his novels. However, this inspired me to gain some insight into the mind of the man who was capable of doing such a thing, and I immediately became a fan of his work. I believe that the writing of Yukio Mishima is capable of transcending political differences. Mishima's work speaks to something different, something more fundamental about the human experience. If you wish to become acquainted with his writings, I strongly recommend that you either read The Temple of the Golden Pavilion or Confessions of a Mask, to begin with. Also, if you enjoyed this series and would like to see a more dramatized account of Mishima's life and works, I suggest you watch Paul Schrader's 1985 biographical film, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. The film utilizes scenes from three of Mishima's novels, Temple of the Golden Pavilion, Kyoko's House, and Runaway Horses, in conjunction with the, dramatized, uh, an, in conjunction with the dramatization of pivotal episodes from Mishima's life, centering on the November 25th incident, to expertly weave together a narrative that provides an intimate portrait of the man, both his life and his work. I hope you have enjoyed this series on the life and times of Yukio Mishima. It has been my honor and my pleasure. I also hope that the series has served to introduce you to one of the more fascinating characters of modern Japanese history, as well as to help humanize a figure who can at times seem larger than life. 
Now, at this point in the episode, I would typically encourage you, the audience, to keep an eye out for the next series premiere in two weeks, but, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the podcast will be going on hiatus until autumn. In the meantime, as I said before, be sure to keep an eye on my Twitter for updates on the podcast and its extended universe, so to speak. Links to my Twitter and Facebook will be found in the episode description, as well as my email, where you can direct any questions, concerns, comments, criticisms, or anything else you have during that time. This has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Until September 4th, 2021, I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.